God willing, we will resume our study in 2 Peter on December the 31st. We'd come to a section, a very powerful section of Peter's condemnation of false teachers. It's a, it's a good way to end the year and to look to a new year warning us about false teachers. So we'll concentrate on the season that we're in between now and then. So would you open God's precious holy word to Micah chapter five, and we're just going to be in verse two. Micah prophesied in the eighth century BC, about in the middle of it. He was contemporary with Isaiah. He prophesied all through Hezekiah's reign and We've been studying about Hezekiah on Wednesday nights, a little bit familiar uh, with the background of the people of God during that time. The frightful time of the rise of Assyria, um, Tiglath-Pileser and Sennacherib and the, the others, other kings that were moving to assert the might and power of Assyria in the world of that day. The culture and the society of the Northern Kingdom and then the Southern Kingdom of Judah had become not just stained with sin, but immersed in sin. The Northern Kingdom fell first. Micah before that time, though he was a prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah, was prophesying against the sins of the northern kingdom of Israel. The Holy Spirit of God surely alerted him that their ways would lead them to destruction, which it did. And 120 years or so before Judah fell, Israel fell. That society was consumed with um, oppression. Micah was from a smaller village outside of Jerusalem. Isaiah, on the other hand, prophesied really at the king's table. He, he was, he was a, a, a counselor to royalty. Micah was more the country preacher, I guess you would say. <clears throat> and so he noted the oppression that existed, the oppression toward the people where he lived, the peasants of the villages who were being mistreated and taken advantage of by those who were in the capital city of Jerusalem and, and those who were in, who were in uh, judicial power as well. And one of, the, one of the signs, first of all, of the collapse of the northern kingdom and then of the southern kingdom later was the elitism that uh, existed between the haves and the have-nots. There was just those two, um, there were just those two sects or 
divisions of society, the, the, uh, the upper class of people and then the peasants. And so they had no one to help them, these peasants. Judges would always rule in favor of those who wanted the judge who had the power to bribe a judge into doing whatever they wanted the judge to do. It was a a terrible time. It was a a time of of oppression and a time of where the people, the, the, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom already was collapsing and then finally collapsed during the prophecy during the prophecy career of uh, Micah. And of course, Micah knew that the southern kingdom was headed the same way. So he, he preached against this and he stood for the, those who were oppressed, uh, the peasants, the insecurity that they felt. God sent him then to prophesy. When uh, he saw the might of Assyria firsthand when, it, when they collapsed, when the northern kingdom collapsed. He was also there in that time when the armies of uh, Sennacherib, they came right to the walls of Jerusalem. We've been, we've been studying that very thing on Wednesday nights. And threatened and intimidated and would have overwhelmed and defeated Jerusalem except that it wasn't the will and purpose of God because the son of David was seated, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and it was by the Davidic covenant that he was there and God was not ready to make the rearrangements regarding the son of David that he made in the time of Ezekiel. It wasn't that time yet. So God would not permit Jerusalem to fall although Jerusalem was hopeless and helpless in the face of this terrible army that outnumbered them greatly. We saw recently, just last time, one angel from God came in one night and killed 185,000 Assyrians and broke the back of Assyria as an empire, as a kingdom. They were never the same after that. So Micah was prophesying during this time and he like other prophets of course and like the church of the Lord Jesus today stands in the world to warn the world that the way of the world will come to an end. Those who rise to power and authority and uh, then through pride and what and elitism, they arrogate to themselves an authority that is not really theirs, and they begin to impose their will uh, in in these nations, the times of the Gentiles, the times of the nations. They impose their will upon those who don't really have that kind of power, money, or authority, and the two classes again begin to exist side by side, but the lower class always is forced to serve the upper class. Like it was in the time of Micah. But his great message in this part of his prophecy is to the people 
that regardless of how small you may seem in the world, there is coming a savior, a ruler, who will put down all of this inequality and evil rule. Jesus said that Jerusalem in, in, the, in the last times would be trodden under by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled. I believe we're approaching that time myself. As he preached, he gave them hope in the coming Christ who would be born in a certain place and in a certain way. It's a tremendous lesson on who Christ is. So then we get into Micah chapter five and verse two. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though little to be among the troops of Judah, insignificant place, Bethlehem. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The soothing promise to the people of God that God is aware of the horrible treatment that this world gives to the people of God. The inequities that exist because of sin, because of the world system, because of the greed and pride of mankind. Micah would say that the purpose of mankind is to to do justly, that is, to perform justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he would say in another verse. We won't be in that verse today. But this is, this is the, 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 the thrust of life for the people of God. But in this time, there was no, and that time extends even today, even to today, there was no true justice. From so many, there is no mercy. And folks, for the most part in this world, are not walking humbly with God. But that time's coming, and this is a great message all the way through the Bible. That all of the kingdoms and powers of the world that come from one generation to the next, so many of them that have fallen in history, we don't even know about them. Despots and kings, some of them preserved in history as far as we know. I wasn't there. I guess they got it right in those history books. I don't know. But I know they don't exist anymore. Even the greatest kingdoms that uh, the world has known, these kingdoms have fallen. Someday, the nation where we live today will, will fall. It'll collapse and fall. The times of the Gentiles, the times of nations, 
are fulfilled, they come to an end. And that's true, history proves it and it will keep on this way until God Almighty sends his son, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, to return in power and in glory and establish the kingdom. How are they going to know about him? One of the things that's revealed in the Bible about him is where he will be born. He will come from insignificant folks who live in an insignificant place in that day. It's about, what, Bethlehem's about six miles or so outside of Jerusalem in that day, and it was just a peasant's village. Seems like it always has been. We'll talk about that as we go through here. So let's consider what he's saying. The Christ of God, the one who comes forth for God to be ruler in Israel is from Bethlehem. First part of the verse. But as for you in Bethlehem for Ephrathah, though little to be among the troops of Judah, you, Bethlehem, art Bethlehem Ephrata. So here, inferior, too little, seemingly nothing. The creator of everything, by the divine design of God, will through the womb of a virgin become a man. The one who made everything, John 1, 1 and 2, even into verse 3. All things through him came into existence. Apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. <laughs> in, the time, in the time of uh, actually Job, Job predates the writings of Moses. So let's look at it chronologically. Job lived in a day where the finest science talked about two gods, the God who was good and the God who was evil. And they were in this, they were in this struggle for control. And you've heard the story before, but you're going to hear it again. Marduk and Tilbach. Finally, Marduk slew Tiabach. Tiabach's slain body was laid out by Marduk and he began to walk across the slain body of the fallen god of evil. And you know how it goes. Marduk spit where he spat, men sprang up. Men would then rise up from the fallen body of Tiabach and they would spit. And where they spat, women sprang up. Then women would walk around and spit. I'd like to see that. <laughs> women spitting. And wherever they spat, animals sprang up. That was the finest science of Job's day. You know what Job says? 
He hangs the world upon nothing. Moses in his day, book of Hebrews says that Moses was learned in all of the ways of the Egyptians and they were the finest culture of the day. The best science you could find was in Egypt and their science said that there was a, a giant turtle and there were five columns on the back of that turtle. And on the, on the top of those columns, which stood on top of that giant turtle, was earth. And this turtle was swimming in an endless cosmic sea. That's what Moses learned in school. And yet, Moses wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, you can move that on forward even to the time of, time of the Greeks who were so smart in the New Testament. Their finest science said that Atlas was holding up the earth, the world, on tireless shoulders. But Jesus said... At the end of days, two will be sleeping in bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two will be at work. One will be taken, the other left. It'll be daytime in parts of the world and nighttime in other parts of the world. Thus the body accurately describes the world spinning on its axis. One among many, he framed the worlds, the writer of the Hebrew said. It's an interesting thing. I mention it almost every Sunday because I'm so overwhelmed by the newest images that come from this web telescope. Things that just, you've never seen this kind of stuff. There's a glob about that. You just never have seen anything like that in other, from other telescopes. And it just, nobody knows what they're looking at. And the one who made these things for the purpose of redeeming his own became a man. And his story is meticulously told. He was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem has its own story. Bethlehem. It has two meanings. We always know it means the house of bread. But did you know also a dual meaning is house of war? In Genesis 35, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And so Bethlehem was the place then where she called in her dying breath she called this son that she birthed as she died with great pain, Benoni, son of sorrow. She died, Jacob held that baby. He changed its name to Benjamin, son of power, not son of sorrow. And yet the dual meanings apply 
to Christ who was a man of sorrows and is also the son of power, seated at the right hand, the hand of majesty, the hand of authority, the hand of power, the son of sorrow. When, uh, when you consider the breastplate of the high priest and he has those 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, there is the carbuncle and the Yaspis, the Reuben, Reuben, which means behold my son. Benjamin means the son of power. Isn't that interesting? This is Christ. Bethlehem is where he was born. Ruth lived in that little village, the Moabites, as did Naomi and Boaz and they, she, Ruth, and he, Boaz, were progenitors of the Christ of God. David came from that line and whenever people by the decree of Caesar Augustus had to be counted for the census, Joseph and Mary had to go to their house of lineage, which was the house of David, Bethlehem. First Samuel, David was born in Bethlehem. The point to be made is this, that Almighty God accommodated himself to a human body as a baby born in such an insignificant place known as both house of bread and house of war. I would say to you here today, you'll either know him as the house of bread and you'll feed on him. Or you'll have to know him as the one who is the house of war. And he will come on you in wrath and power in that day. The one gently born in Bethlehem as the one who is our savior, who offered himself as the bread of life, is also that very same one who in the revelation at the end of it comes in power and glory and in the wrath of God. And all the armies of Armageddon and those who oppose him around the world will collapse and die. They'll fall in disgrace and finally be cast into the lake of fire. Bethlehem Ephratah. But there's more than just that. He doesn't just come from a humble village and the lineage of David. He also comes forth from God. From you one will go forth for me to be the ruling one in Israel. Well, sure. He is the ruler of rulers, the king of kings. The point made from Micah to his day is, yes, the Assyrians are strong, but they couldn't penetrate the house of David. Yes, the empires, the nations of the world are mighty, and they can even rise to a point where they can impose 
their will upon the people of the earth. But it won't always be that way. Because God the Father is going to send God his son. Who will come and be born of a virgin in such an insignificant village as Bethlehem. And when he comes, he will come forth from God. Nothing will stop it. Oh, how many times? All the way through the Bible. Did despots of this world try to destroy the nation of Israel? And then after that, the kingdom of Judah. And then even after that, the time of Herod, the baby Jesus. But they could not. Because he comes forth from God. And I'll tell you this. When the armies of the world stand in opposition to him, they will fall. He comes forth from God. For what purpose? To be ruler in Israel. God's elect people in the Old Testament were given a covenant. They were given a land. And they were given a promise. That from Israel would come the king of kings. And he would come to be our savior. Ehashua. The last name of Yahweh that is found in the Bible is the name of Jesus. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Yahweh Savior. There is no greater name. He, he contains all of the other names of Yahweh that are given in the Old Testament. I don't have time to go through it. I probably couldn't remember all of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, Yahweh of armies, Yahweh of, of banners, Yahweh healer, Yahweh wisdom, Yahweh shepherd. I mean, just go on and on and on. It all comes to rest in one perfect, sublime individual who came forth from God to be ruler in Israel. And the great promise is, and we're told even today, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know why? Because there won't be peace in Jerusalem until the Son of God comes, the Son of David, and is established on the throne there in that wonderful kingdom. And the church will rule and reign with him. And Israel will be most favored nation in that kingdom of a thousand years that John the Revelator writes about. It's, it's unstoppable. There's no doubt about it. Why? Because he comes from God. It's not, it's not a series of conspiracies. It isn't by his own will. How many times did he pray and he said, I have come to do the will of my father. So he goes to the cross and he dies for his own. He redeemed me on the cross. And now in this time of the church from among the Gentiles the church is being called out collected and time won't stop until the last of his own are gathered then we'll be caught up and caught away and then judgment comes for seven years how do I know that all of this is true because it comes forth from God I can look at the world today. We could spend two weeks or more studying 
what is going on in the world today and how it's just adding up to exactly what the prophets have said. He comes from Bethlehem, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, coming forth for God to be ruler in Israel. God sent him forth to rule. He was born a king, and when he rules on that throne, he will rule in Israel. Finally, he comes from Bethlehem, he comes from God, and he comes out from eternity. There never was a time when Christ was not. He belongs to eternity. His goings forth, whose goings forth, are from before time. You see that? Or from long ago, from before time. Before there was time, there was God the Son, the great Godhead. There was God the Son who would be God who would create everything, time and space, and in order to redeem his own, would become part of his creation. Lay aside his glory and his deity, Philippians chapter two, to do what no other could do, and that is to save us, those who are his, to save us, his own. So he, he came forth from before time, from days of the ages, me. From days of eternity. That's a realm that we cannot fathom because we don't belong to it. We just belong, we can understand time and space. But it's very difficult for us to understand the eternal realm from whence Christ came to be born. In Bethlehem, this Christ of God, born in Bethlehem, stood before Pontius Pilate on that day. Pilate tried to get Jesus to make a case for himself because Pilate knew he wasn't guilty. And Jesus said, the only reason that you're standing in authority over me is because my father has made it so. There's no other reason that you're there. For this purpose, for this hour, I came into the world. Born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died vicariously for his own, died for me. Are you in Christ? He died for you. And he's coming again. Having sent forth his spirit, gathering his own to himself, preparing the world for his rule and his reign, and that won't happen until the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles, completely are fulfilled and the way of the world implodes and explodes and Christ comes in power and glory. This is the Christ who was born in Bethlehem. 
he came forth to Bethlehem from God and he came out of eternity to do for us what only he could do. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the son of God. He came into this world to save sinners, the Bible says. And the Bible teaches us, admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, call on him in confession, bound by his word then to save you. Because it is God who convicts, it is God who calls. We can't create that for ourselves, God does that. It's a God thing. To make us have revealed in our hearts who Jesus is. In just a moment, we'll be dismissed. We have deacons and wives waiting to pray with you just across the hall as you exit. If you feel that the Lord is calling you into his salvation today, they're prepared to pray with you. Maybe you'd like to come and be a part of Shiloh. They're there prepared to pray with you and to work out the details as well. But for now, would you prayerfully stand and let me say this.